Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of McMinnville podcast. Founded in 2007, UUFM is a gathering place for people who embrace a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We are located in the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley wine country. Please visit us on the web at macuuf.org, M-A-C-U-U-F dot org. And if you are ever in or near the McMinnville area, don't hesitate to stop by and visit us. UUFM gathers in love and service for justice and peace. Well, I'd like to introduce to you today Reverend Rick Davis, Dr. Davis to us. Um, I figured out who Marsha, Marsha Warner was a girlfriend in high school. So. <laughs> Marsha Blevins, yeah, keep, keep, keep an eye on me. Um, anyway, you, as you've read here, this is very sweet. He's served as minister in the UU congregation in Salem for the past 26 years. He has often spoken here at UUFM and always looks forward to being with us. <laughs> I did. So great to have you. It's good to have you. It is good to be here again. I, God, I've lost count. How many, how many years has it been since you guys began? It's, it's amazing. It's amazing how time flies. But it is, it's good to be here to get today. I'm, I'm a little tired this morning. We had a, a, big, a big celebration in my congregation last night. We had over 200 people for a dinner, and we, we celebrated the life and ministry of our congregation. Uh, and, and it was such a mess when I left. I said, I probably need to get out of town. <laughs> let them let somebody else clean it. So I'm kind of glad to, to be out of town and come here. Uh, I just wanted to share a little bit of my personal story and how I think it, it relates to uh, building the kind of community that you're you're creating. And I can see that you're doing it right now. It's it's always such a pleasure to sit and watch and see how the, your community has just come together. And it, it actually gives me a fresh perspective on, on the meaning of community as I see what you've done here, and I say, yeah, if I moved to McMinnville, I'd come here. I'd need, I'd need a place like this. I need, I need community. I'm going to back up a little bit and start telling you about my life and how it plays into needing community. When I was, uh, I was born into a society where corporal punishment was not just the norm. It was an expectation that all parents would use this tool to keep their children in line. I'm from the deep south, and uh, it's the legacy that they have in that part of the country. It's the highest death penalty states and uh, corporal punishment. It's just part of the culture. And so that's the culture and society into which I was born. Fortunately for me, I had a mother who was quickly dissuaded from this model of parenting corporal punishment. When I was a toddler, she spanked me for some transgression, I can't remember what it is anymore. I don't know that I ever acknowledged my fault, but it, 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 uh, it got me a spanking. It got me a spanking. And my mom later reported to me as an adult, because I didn't remember this, she said, you cried so hard after that spanking, it just seemed to have broken your heart. And I never had the heart to do it again. So that was the end of corporal punishment in my life, I'm happy to say. Then, some years later, I was about 12 years old, I got a pretty serious sports injury. It incurred a lot of pain and a lot of loss for me, and medical costs for the family. And my mom, recently divorced and raising the family on her 
secretary's salary. She got all stressed out one day, and she very uncharacteristically yelled at me about the financial strain all of this was causing the family, whereupon I burst into tears. And this stopped my mother in her tracks, as she recognized the suffering I was already going through, and she instantly apologized and said, I love you. We'll find the money. I'm so sorry I yelled at you like that. And I understood. I understood. Now, lest you are beginning to suspect that this sermon is about how to use your tears to manipulate others. <laughs> For your personal benefit and profit. That's, don't be so cynical. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, in neither of these instances, uh, a toddler or when I was 12 years old, I did not plan to cry. And I was not trying to cry to manipulate anybody. I was just expressing my emotions. And it was a hard time. My true feelings, they just flooded out in tears. Which calls to mind, I remember the, in the sixth grade, there was this girl, I remember her name. I won't say it because she might be here this morning. <laughs> Kathy Boughton, Boughton? No, never mind. Um, she, uh, she had just come from some other place. It must have been really hard for her. She was in a difficult new situation. And so on occasion, not too often, she's a very bright, smart, personable, sociable person. But she would cry. She would cry sometimes. And the boys in the class nicknamed her Waterworks. Waterworks, or cry baby. And so I could see that crying was a sign of weakness, not something you're supposed to do, especially, especially if you're a boy. And I managed to hold it all in in school settings until my senior year of high school. I played the trumpet in the high school band, and our football team was really good. It went to the state championship, and we were all there in Atlanta for the state championship, and then we lost the game. Not because they lost the game, it, it was a terrible call. And after the team lost, I just broke down and I started crying. And it wasn't anything to do with the football loss. That was just a stimulus. I was going through, my family was going through a terrible time at that point. In fact, my family was disintegrating. Uh, divorce, mental illness, all sorts of stuff. It was a hard time for me. And there was no one that I could talk to about this. No one. There were no counselors called in in those days. You just sucked, sucked it up and you, you dealt with it. And so when we lost this high school football game, it was right after some very traumatic news I had gotten. I just started crying right there in my band uniform. The last thing a high school senior wants to do. But I did. And everybody looked at me with compassion. Everybody treated me with compassion. My fellow students, no one ever said, what a wimp, he broke down, he's crying. Everybody seemed to sense, this is about more than losing a football game. And so some help was forthcoming, not the help I probably needed at the time, but even just having the opportunity to cry in that setting was something that gave me a sense of relief. Now, if you're a male, a boy or a young man especially, in our society, this relief 
is much less available or acceptable to you according to the social norms and practically I saw this in the New York Times. It's not just Western culture, it's practically all around the world. The social norms in practically every culture around the world, the emotional behaviors of men are much more greatly constrained than for women. It's considered a sign of weakness for men to cry. In lacking socially acceptable ways to express their feelings, males are far more prone to a host of maladies, and maladjusted behaviors. And the tragic toll this constraining toxic model of masculinity exacts on men, it's incalculable. You can't even begin to imagine what it's done to the men and the people around them who are affected by their behaviors. I've learned, I didn't learn this until later, but there's actually, what is masculine? What's masculine? Well, actually, there's a very broad spectrum of that which me, might be considered masculine. And I was pretty sure early on that I didn't fit the traditional role of masculinity. I knew this about myself. And over time, I came to feel really good about it. I said, this is who I am. I'm not like everybody else in, of my sex. I'm, I have my own ways of being, my own emotional ways of being. I'm not going to be constrained by that model. And so weeping is something that I have done, never planning it, but when I've done it, it's always had a positive thing, a effect. It, when I look back on it, it's always been transformative and positive. It creates the opportunity, crying, it creates an opportunity for an authentic connection with another person, whether you are the consoler or the consoled. Many years ago, I felt a call to enter the ministry, the ranks of the ministry, which often involves consoling people during times of loss. And one day, one afternoon, very early in my student chaplaincy at Piedmont Hospital in Atlanta, I think I was in my second week of theology school, I had to buy a suit, which I wasn't used to wearing, and put on a badge, said, you're a student chaplain now, and my floor, I got assigned to my floor, and I would go up there and do my work, and then afterwards one day I was walking back to the office, the chaplain's office, and I saw a family off to the side, and they, they looked, well, they were crying, and I could tell something was going on, and there was nobody else there to, to go up to them, and so I went up and, and asked what was going on with them, and it was such a sad story. Their adult daughter, had come into the hospital for seemingly a minor surgery. And due to medical complications, things spun out of control. And the young woman had died. And so, of course, the family was crying. And that was okay. But then I started crying, too. I started crying. And I couldn't help myself. And they didn't seem to mind. We connected with each other. But afterwards, I wondered, have I, I'm, I'm supposed to be a minister. Maybe I am not supposed to do this. And I, I checked with, uh, in my supervised ministry group with my other students, we were supposed to do what's called a verbatim, where you would describe an interaction with uh, somebody and, and then everybody would 
reflect with you on the experience and say, was this ministerial? Are you learning your own ministerial style and everything? And I told them about this instant, and all my fellow students, they took me to task because I wasn't being professional and I wasn't having good boundaries. I wasn't going to good boundaries. And in response to this, our supervisor quoted the shortest verse in the Bible, the King James Bible, the shortest verse in the King James Bible. Greg Valentine, do you know what it is? I reckon it's John 11.35. And what is it? I know. You'll have to. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now you guys can go around town with that knowledge. <laughs> you learned something about the Bible today. That's the first verse in the Bible. <coughs> Jesus wept. And after the supervisor said that, they kind of brought it into the conversation that day, and I thought that was great. And thereafter, I have felt empowered or allowed to go ahead and cry in the line of my duty as a minister, as long as I can stay grounded and continue to be a minister. My congregation has often seen me tear up uh, during almost every memorial service. Because when I do a memorial service, I know these people. And, and, I, and I have three coming up in the next two weeks. So my heart's a little heavy. And I cry at the very beginning when I announce that somebody's died. I don't, I don't plan on it, it just happens. I have this grief. And I can't hide it. It's who I am. And so I have felt free to weep as a minister. It's who I am. My congregation doesn't have a problem with it. They just know that's me. I can always gain my control again. It's not like I fall down on the floor sobbing, but I have the emotion. And I can handle it. Most times. Most times. But then there was this afternoon a few years ago. There I was, I was sitting in my car, at way out east of Salem, in a rural cemetery, and it was so hard. This young man, this young man, I had known him. Uh, I watched him grow up. He was such a tender soul. He was a conscientious objector. He couldn't even bear to use a rototiller in the, in the garden because it would kill the worms. He was such a, a dear young fellow, but he couldn't take care of himself. And he died of a drug overdose. And I was expected to stand up around the gravesite, 50 or 60 people, and deliver the words, speak the words, do the memorial service. And so I, I sat in the car, and there was a cannonball-sized blood and grief just weighing down on me. And I just I can't do this. How am I going to do this? I'm so, I'm so sorrowful. I'm so sad. And so, here's what I did. About 15 minutes before the service started, I donned my ministerial role. And I went over and I stood at the graveside. And I wept. Not gentle weeping, I mean, I sobbed, I let it all out. I didn't hold back, I cried. I cried, and I cried. And then it was done. 
And then I was able to officiate at that service without losing control after that. And as I was doing that service, I couldn't help but look over at the father of the young man who had died. And I was thinking, too, at the very same moment about the mother who wasn't there. The mother was not there when her son was being laid in the ground. She wasn't there because her only daughter was giving birth at the very same moment. What a world we live in. And that's the way it goes in my life in ministry. I see, I see sorrow. And then I see joy. And then I see sorrow and joy. And then there's sorrow and there's joy. They're always intermixing. You kind of hope that, no, I'm going to get to this place where there won't be any more sorrow. There'll just be joy. And I'm, I have, no, I'm not going to get there. I'm not going to get there. There will always be sorrow mixed in. But it's mixed in. It's not all there is. There's joy and sorrow. I, I love the way the, the poet William Blake put it when he said that joy and woe, this is one of our hymns. You should sing it some Sunday. It's set to the tune of a, a Red Fun Williams song. It's uh, joy and woe are woven fine, clothing for the soul divine. And with this, we rightly know, safely through the world we go. There's so much that brings me joy in my ministry, in my congregation, in my life. It's so much joy to, to be here, to see you all joined as a community, and to see the good things that you're doing. But there'll be sorrow. I have a memorial service on Thursday, and another one on Saturday, and another one on the following Saturday, and we'll, we'll cry. But then we'll celebrate too. We'll celebrate those good lives. And you learn that this is the rhythm of life, that you can keep your spiritual balance as life unfolds, realizing that it's all a glorious gift, and all these gifts return to the source from whence they came, and, and you learn to trust in the greater rhythms of life, knowing that all is well, or will be well, in the course of time, because there is a love that threads through everything and holds it all together in ways beyond our knowing. And so, in our congregations, we honor both sorrow and joy. A few weeks ago in my congregation, I got with my Lifelines Ministry group, and I said, I want to declare our sanctuary to be a free cry zone. Uh, that's because a lot of times during the... Uh, fellowship hour, it's in a different room. People, somebody will call and say, Rick, there's somebody in the, in the sanctuary and they're crying. You should go see them. And uh, it's as though they're crying because something's wrong. And, and there usually is something terribly wrong. People come to religious community, not just to find community, but to find healing, to find hope, to find a place where you can be your full, authentic self. And so we invite people to sit in our sanctuary and if they need to cry, for some loss, they can. On the second Sunday of every month, we have a ritual that we've actually done here once or twice. It's called Compassionate Connection. And we say if you're going through a really, really hard time, and every one of us does at one time or another, anyone here who hasn't gone through a hard time, raise your hand. You know? no. 
Everybody. We have that in common, don't we? There's pain and sorrow in our lives. And so with our compassionate connection, we gather in a circle and we share the stories. And members of the Lifelines Lay Ministry are there to offer their support. And by creating a space for people to share that part of themselves, and we always bring out the tissues. There's always crying at compassionate connection. And it feels good to see the crying happen in a safe and a sacred space because we know that we're helping to build beloved community, a place where people can be their true, authentic selves, <coughs> where we can come and, and feel our joy, but also come and have our rituals where we share our sorrows and where it's okay to cry. Every one of us has unshed tears. Every one of us. I know that. And for us, for us to feel free that we can shed them in a place like this is a beautiful blessing in our lives. It helps us build community. It helps us connect with one another authentically. It's a path to healing and wholeness. <laughs>